This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. With Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us again, it's been a while, but you are always in our hearts and with us on Slack and assigning us things. Jeff Giles, welcome back. Hi, thank you. You made me tear up when you said that. <laughs> about how about how you assign us things and, um, no, how you, and I'm in guide our lives. Yes, always. Jeff, you're here this week specifically because we're continuing our Oscar flashback series. And when I kind of surveyed our colleagues and asked people, you said, I'm very into Witness and wanted to make it clear yeah. That, that this was your movie. Um, so we're going to talk about Witness later in the show. Uh, we also have a Marvel spectacular set of interviews. Um, Joanna talked to Elizabeth Olsen and Sebastian Stan, who are on some Marvel TV shows that you might have heard uh, Joanna and Richard talking about a lot over on Still Watching. So we'll look forward to those interviews and talk about those in a bit. Um, but we're just going to catch up on some of the news and new releases that are out there. And I figured last week after we shared our enthusiasm or, you know, muted enthusiasm for In the Heights. It opened in theaters to box office that you can either freak out about or say Greatest Showman also had long legs, so don't worry about it. Um, to me, it was a little bit of a disappointment, though, just that people weren't running into theaters to go dance in the aisles like I wanted to. Um, how are we all feeling about uh, In the Heights and box office at this point? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a disappointment and, you know, didn't serve as the strong indicator of a revived theater-going economy uh that we hoped it would um the same way that conjuring in a quiet place part two had yeah and godzilla vs kong before that and you know there have and like quiet place two holding the number one spot you know in its second week over a big splashy very heavily marketed um new movie uh yeah was not a great indication there's also indications that in the heights didn't do well on hbo max hmm what indications do we have of that? Like, how do we? There was a uh, there's a a company I forget the name of it that does data for that kind of thing, and it was something in like a few hundred thousand people roughly streamed it on HBO Max, and you know Warner Brothers had released a statement saying that like HBO Max didn't kill the box office for In the Heights because actually when they have a hit in the theaters, it's actually also been a hit on HBO Max. Like weirdly, those numbers are more parallel versus mm. like inverted or whatever. So, yeah, that was all kind of not the debut that people were expecting, certainly. But I also, you know, the film was also bogged down in a lot of, uh, I think, justified criticisms this weekend about its casting, specifically its use of, well, non, it, it didn't, they didn't hire a lot of Black Latinx people, especially in a story about um, a neighborhood that's heavily Dominican that raised a lot of 
alarm bells for people. And there were a lot of articles and tweets about that this weekend. So yeah, it was just not a, not a great weekend for, for In the Heights. Do we think that the, I mean, I think all that's totally valid, but do we also think that In the Heights brand was maybe over, is it as well known as people seem to think it was? That would be my question. Um, yeah. Ahead of time. I mean, compared to A Quiet Place 2. Sure. Yeah. I, I think it's kind of hard to compare like an existing movie franchise with a Broadway show that closed a decade ago, despite the like Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda connection there. Um, like it makes me wonder if musicals aren't the draw that, you know, the likes of us would like to think that they are. But also, again, like I have held on to the fact that The Greatest Showman opened pretty quietly over Christmas and then played for months and months and months and months and months. Like it does seem like if something is going to continue drawing people in, if it can stay in theaters, that this is something that could. Yeah, I mean, that had Hugh Jackman, if I'm not mistaken, which was a big... <laughs> he was. He was, was he in fact, the in The Greatest Showman. showman. He, is the, he is the titular Greatest Showman. <laughs> uh, I, I, think, I think the star power they were relying on was Lin-Manuel Miranda. And right. I think that this perhaps is an indication that his star does not burn quite as bright across the country as it does in New York and parts of Los Angeles, you know? I think that, you know, theater stuff is tricky because with a lot of media and money sourced in New York and, you know, focused in New York, there can be a tendency to assume that that is a stand-in for a broader sort of cultural consciousness, which it oftentimes is not. I was debating this with a friend the other day, uh, and we were saying, okay, so, like, what's the last musical that actually really, like, permeated a much broader culture, you know, like Chicago, which we talked about on this podcast, that the movie helped certainly like people know all that jazz and various other, you know, songs from that show. I said Wicked, but then I'm like, actually, do people really know Wicked? Like, if you just ask someone random on the street somewhere, um, it gets really, really hard because theater is such a limited audience um, because it's expensive and it's in one place. And, you know, obviously in the Heights, I think it did tour, but I think the calculation seems to have been pretty off here. I think also that because critics loved it so much, it also raised expectations. People were so happy about how much they loved it, and that yeah. made us think America would love it. And and I I agree with you, Richard, that about you know maybe Hamilton is actually the star, even above and beyond the creator. You know, uh, I just don't know how many people know in the Heights. I until this round of movie stuff, I was not too aware of it uh, two years ago because I hadn't seen it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I want to remain. I want to maintain my hope that a that movie theaters are still going to be coming back. You know, we've got the Fast and the Furious movie coming right around the corner. I don't think you know. Just there's the box office performance in China that we talked about. That was a little troublesome, but it feels like that is poised to do well. Um, you know, I saw In the Heights with a crowd on a Saturday night, and I was so thrilled by the idea of being in a room with people experiencing something. And I hope that people are considering that when figuring out how they want to spend their post-vaccinated life, that like that is a worthy experience to have for, um, you know, a relatively cheap price. So I hope people keep going to theaters, even if even if In the Heights is not their thing. They'll, of course, see Fast 9, right? No matter what. Nothing will keep them from the religiosity of the Fast Five. I had uh, Vin Diesel greeting me at my In the Heights screening and tell me about the movies. It was so, it was great. His deep, sonorous voice um, was, was so soothing to me. Um, all right, well, let's talk about television. Back to our small screens. Um, Joanna, when we were prepping this episode, you were said, uh, effectively, Bo Burnham has crashed the Emmys race. And I was like, wait a second, Emmy voting is over. But Bo Burnham released his uh, his Netflix special right before the Emmys cut off on May 30th. Um, so it really is kind of like a late minute, like busted through the door. Tell me about who he'll be competing against at the Emmys and why we think uh, that he's suddenly in the mix. 
so this is this is a funky little category, right? This is a you know variety special pre-recorded, and it can encompass a lot of different things. Hamilton obviously is a big hitter in this category. You know, and then we've got some some of the the tape stages that we on this podcast talked about a lot during the pandemic uh, in, in terms of like chasing that that live theater feeling, right? So you've got the David Byrne concert film, American Utopia. Uh, you've got Derek Delgadio's uh, show that we talked about, what the Constitution means to me. And, like we talked about all this stuff, but Bo crashing in at the last minute uh, with this special which, yes, I really loved and a lot of people really loved and some people have some great critiques of it. Um, our wonderful colleagues, uh, Cassie DeCosta and Chris Murphy, wrote a great piece for VF.com about sort of some of their critiques, but overall what I am seeing and specifically what I'm seeing from other people who might be Emmy voters is that they loved this thing. And mm. like, it's hard to imagine anything unseating Hamilton <laughs> in general, um, but... I don't know. In terms of like the conversation about filming something in a pandemic that feels like urgent and artistically worthy and stuff like that, the Bo Burnham special inside um, is is the piece of art that I have seen held up as worthy of that. So yes, I loved it personally, but I think that's not really the point. The point is that like I think Emmy voters loved it. Um, but I could be wrong, but I, I just think it's interesting that it just sort of came out of nowhere, uh, to, to cause some waves here. And there's very little in the mix this year that actually is, uh, like is about the pandemic or reflects on it. Like there's the Amazon series solos, which I'm not sure that many people watched. Um, and you know, there's like the kind of metaphorical thing, like WandaVision is about being trapped in a bubble, but like a lot of these things like went forward despite the pandemic or like Queen's Gambit was made before the pandemic. So the idea of something that's kind of like really directly tapping on that, bruise we all have from the past year like if there's gonna be one thing that does it maybe it's the Bo Burnham thing yeah I don't know do Emmy voters care that some things like Hamilton or um what the constitution means to me feel like they're from the 90s or something they're so long ago doesn't that will that not bother anybody I don't know about bother, but I think it might be a factor. It might be like, okay, Hamilton's here and we like Hamilton, but doesn't Hamilton have a mountain of awards? And wouldn't it be more interesting to like award something um, a little bit more forward looking um, that's possible? Yeah. Or that, that that's more immediately on your brain, which right. is why so many of these things try to premiere in May to be part of the conversation. Although right. we look at, you know, Ted Lasso and Queen's Gambit, like I mentioned, like both of them premiered what feel like a full lifetime ago. Right. Um, and I don't think anything's going to knock those down. So I think it can depend on the on the production, right? As I am looking at Gold Derby, uh, there's side-by-side -side banner ads for American Utopia. So campaign, I love American there. Utopia. <clears throat> I would love to see American Utopia get something before the end of the day, but I guess we're at the end of the day now. I mean, how fun would it be if, uh, you know, the week that Broadway reopens is the week before the Emmys? I mean, Broadway's reopening in stages, but like the September 14th is when a lot of big shows are coming back. And then a, uh, a big musical wins an Emmy. It would be perfect. Synergy. All right. Lastly, before we get into our Oscar flashback, uh, Richard, you wanted to talk a little bit about Luca, the new Pixar movie, which I assume is playing in theaters as well as debuting on Disney Plus this weekend. It's not going to be a Disney Plus exclusive. I think it actually is. Interesting. Yeah, direct to streaming on Disney Plus. Oh, wow. I guess and it'll have a little theatrical run at one theater because that, that way sure, it can qualify to qualify. For yeah, I mean, kids are unvaccinated, so I guess I get it. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think it'll do well there. People always anticipate the new Pixar. The trailer is really cute about these two boys in a sort of fantasy Italy at some point in the middle of the last century, roughly. 
um, who are also secretly kind of sea monsters who, when they're out of the water, turn into like humans and then under the water are these other creatures, not mermaids, by the way, this is not little mermaid. <laughs> Although there are some points where you're like, this is kind of a rehash of, <laughs> of the 1989 film. Um, the other thing that people have been talking about since the trailer debuted. And I think even before the trailer were these kind of rumblings based on some of the themes and everything and who is involved in making it, making the film that this might be Pixar's like gay movie or gay allegory. I think also, it, you know, the Italy thing made people think about Call Me By Your Name. Well, and the, which, the, 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 word, the name Luca. Luca. And about, yeah. like, two friends in an unforgettable summer. Like, the uh-huh. parallels are really there. They're, yeah. they're certainly there. You know, I think those things are in there. I think that Pixar films are often directly about what they're about, but also sort of allegorical at the same time somehow. Um, I think Luca is much in that tradition. You can definitely look at it through a pretty clear lens as like an, a, a metaphor for these two boys who are different and are not visibly different necessarily when they're on land, but there is a difference inside them that bonds them and alienates them from other people around them. Um, you know, that, that seems like a pretty clear one-to-one, but I think there's also um, an interesting way to look at it in terms of being a movie about gender identity or uh, even about like immigration. I think about like the refugee crisis in Europe right now and uh, the ongoing, you know, people literally coming ashore to a new country and huh. being, you know, ostracized exercised and fearful and all that. So I think there's a lot going on within it, but actually the story itself, which is just kind of these two boys, they meet a, a human girl and they enter this kind of triathlon for kids in this town and involves bicycle riding and swimming and <laughs> pasta eating. And, you know, it just, it's a, it's a light Wait, pasta kind of, eating is one of the competitions for triathlon? The, those are the three events. Yeah. I've done yeah. part of that triathlon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would participate yeah. in, in that part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all know that, uh, <laughs> where we'd fall on that, on that, uh, triathlon. Um, but yeah, it's a really, it's a sweet little movie. I don't, think it's like it doesn't have quite the same resonance as some other Pixar films but I think also that might be because at least for me like I had a lot more anticipation for this than I do for a lot of Pixar stuff just because of all these sort of rumors swirling around the movie before it came out and so maybe I was a little not let down exactly but just sort of unsatisfied in that regard but yeah it's cute people will love it it's very summery it's definitely if nothing else going to uh, get a lot of kids complaining to their parents about, you know, when can we go to Italy, I think. (laughs) (laughs) When the Italian government will let you cross the border, you guys, there's still a pandemic on. Um, I think it is interesting. I mean, I I wrote, I'm, well, I'm currently, as we record this in the, hopefully about to write something about Luca, but also, um, you know, Love, Victor premiered its second season last Friday. Um, and that's a show that was originally going to be on Disney+. Plus. It's a spinoff of Love, Simon, the first ever Hollywood film about a gay teenager coming out. And I was a little disappointed when Disney punted it to Hulu for its first season because it felt like kind of a cop-out. I was like, there should be some gay content on Disney+. Plus. It is it is not objectionable. It is not risque. This is the lived reality of a lot of kids mm. um, around the world. But in its second season, because they are now fully on Hulu, the you know the creators of the show, the writers were like, okay, we're going to put us on Hulu. We're going to be Hulu then, and they and you know so they upped the sex, they've upped the swearing, they've you know gotten a bit more um, risque, I guess. But it's interesting to look at Luca and Love Victor as both you know components of under this huge Disney corporation umbrella, and to look at like how the company is handling LGBTQ plus content explicitly in Love Victor's case, implicitly maybe in Luca's case, 
And I think, you know, there is actually sort of a nice gradient, but I think in Luca's case, um, it would take a, um, a, th- a conscientious or thoughtful sort of parent guardian, whoever is sitting with the kid watching that movie to maybe kind of discuss those themes with them because they're not immediately apparent. We're at least making some progress from the exclusively gay moments of uh, four or five years ago that drove everybody insane. Oh, not even four or five month, years ago, Katie. Last month, to Cruella. Oh, <laughs> like right. they, they were crowing about this character in Cruella who like never says anything you know, explicitly about who they are. Um, and it's just sort of window dressing, you know, for, for the movie to kind of be, you know, seem that much cooler or whatever. So yeah, this is an ongoing process for this big company that determines so much of culture. We have it, the conversation happening in Mar- the Marvel world, and that's supposedly going to be solved to some extent with Eternals. And uh, yeah, so we're still in the growing pains phase, but I do see some progress. I think that people are better off finding their gay content elsewhere. But <laughs> I can't believe they touted that character in Cruella. That's wild. I did not know that they did that. Okay. I still have some affection for, of all of that, that crop of characters in Frozen, the um, kind of like the spa shop owner who at one point like waves to his family sitting in the sauna and it's like a man with their two kids. Like, I still like him. I feel like as a representation of a queer family, that's pretty solid. Wow, I had totally forgotten. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. You don't remember that landmark in uh, on-screen representation, Richard? Yeah. I think I was too busy getting a over the calls for filing a negative review of Frozen 2. <laughs> oh my god. I think Just history is going to bear you out on that a one. A brave man. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, it's time for the Oscar flashback portion of the show. Jeff, you came hot out of the gate wanting to talk about Witness. Of all of the movies that have been nominated for Best Picture, uh, Witness was among the 1985 Best Picture nominees. It lost to Out of Africa. We can talk about it. Um, why, why was Witness your pick? 
Um, I love the movie, obviously, and I, I'd go so far as to say, and I know that Joanna will leap through the interweb to strangle me, but I think it's the best Harrison Ford movie. I think it's beautifully made, beautifully written, has a real depth of feeling that you don't always see in movies, or rare, I would even say rarely see in Harrison Ford movies, even in movies where he's vengeful and wants to hurt people, which he often does. This is a movie where like, it's really animated by emotion. I just thought it was beautifully made and exactly the kind of movie that big studios should be able to make all the time and you know have failed to make a billion times. Like you look at it and you go, okay, this is a movie. It has a solid plot. It's a really good cast and it's beautifully written in a subtle way. Um, and they just make them so rarely it's mind boggling. So I love it. It's also my favorite fish out of water story because I think it, the, the themes of, you know, you have this cop who goes into Amish country and it is his, you know, he's the bad guy. His morals, his universe are clearly in the wrong throughout the entire movie. And it's his own inability to keep his anger down that stops him from being able to, that that gives him up, that shows that he's hiding. Um, I think it's just, I think the love story is great. The stuff with the kid is great. And um, Lucas Haas. Lucas Haas is fantastic. Viggo Mortensen, is he an extra? Is he a supporting character? Who knows? But he's there building the Amish barn. He has some lines, right? He must have had I don't a, know that he a speaks sad card. A, I don't know if he speaks a word. He I, uh, eats chicken very expressively. That happens. <laughs> yeah, I don't know <laughs> if we star noticed was him born. in 85. But, um, yeah, now, you would not you look, notice him. Now you look back and you go, why did Viggo take that part? He doesn't even talk. Um, I think it, it was his first had, screen role. Yeah, that sounds right. Moses Hochleitner. I think um, it also is one of my favorite, like, violent revenge moments where they go into town and Harrison Ford is dressed as an Amish and they're in the horse and buggy and some, you know, evil locals humiliate the Amish and um, and they all sit there and take it because they're nonviolent. And, and it's really a disgusting moment that really captures a lot about what we now call toxic masculinity, also known as just sometimes masculinity. And um, it's awful to watch. And then there's this great moment, which is, I think, my favorite, like, action movie, catchphrase kind of moment. It's kind of a Bruce Willis-y kind of moment, but I think it really works because of all the themes involved. When, you know, the, the older Amish dad says... Harrison Ford's about to get out and beat the crap out of the, the local for humiliating the Amish, right? And the old man says, don't, it's not our way. And Harrison Ford says, it's mine. And mm -hmm. he gets out and he tells the guy, you're doing the wrong thing. And the guy laughs at him and puts, you know, ice cream on his face. And it's a cool moment because it's, it really makes you question the use of violence and, you know, morality of it of what he does when he beats the crap out of the guy and by doing that like i said that's how they find out he's hiding that's how the bad cops find him and so um his own nature which he can't conquer uh, anyway i'm gonna start crying because i love it so well, much well that's how and that's how it pays off at the end too like he he confronts the bad guy who he thought was his friend and sold him right. out and um you know stands alongside the amish and basically dares him to shoot them and then recognizes humanity yeah and this guy who's come to kill him and and ends the standoff without violence and that's a, the pun on the title witness which i didn't realize until recently um yeah, they all witness what this guy is going to do, and by witnessing him nonviolently, he's too ashamed to actually do what he thought he was going to do, which is shoot John Book with his gun of the hand. Um, 
I so would like you, to wait, wait, uh, really quickly. I, I really cannot let that. This is I the best Harrison can. Ford film stand because it's regarding Henry Erasure. And I just, <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say it's Fugitive Erasure, which is most, what most people say. I was prepared for the Fugitive, but tell me about regarding Henry. No, no, I'm not. I mean, I love regarding Henry, but I'm not. Gonna, I think I, I think you're right. I think that's up there. But I think if <laughs> no, most, no, no, this is this is a wonderful, beautiful film. I would I wouldn't fight anyone who said this was. They thought this was the best Harrison Ford film. I'm also. Um, a sucker for Peter Weir movies. And yeah. I think um, even if you forget the two great movies he made star a pre-psychotic Mel Gibson, you know, Gallipoli in the Year of Living Dangerously. I mean, he made Dead Poets Society. He made Truman Show, which I think is another perfect movie in its of its kind. We should do Truman Show on the yeah. flashback mean, series sometime. Yeah, I, I would return for that and say that it's better than Witness. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, no, it's up there. Um, but I just think, you know, a lot of Harrison Ford movies, especially um, The Fugitive, which I know people love and is a solid, solid action movie, the the characters he plays get so get so much credit because he's Harrison Ford and we bring so much to so much love and um, obsession with him to the movie. But Witness actually has a love story you care about. And the fugitive, like the wife dies and I think black and white fl- blurry flashback and you don't know a single thing other than he is running. Um, so anyway, that's my argument. I think I think you're right that like Harrison Ford, we know him so well as like a propulsive man of action, right? Whether he's Indiana Jones or Han Solo or you yeah. know uh, the president on Air Force One or whatever it is, like right, he's a man of action. And the idea that Witness is asking this man of action to put that aside and can he put it aside? So like the, just the pure. Peter Weir pleasure of the quiet moments of watching him like do carpentry. Oh yeah, or and whatever know. it is, you and know you're like, I mean? oh yeah, he didn't have to learn that carpentry for this movie. Yeah, right. yeah. he knew it. He, he knew it. And he like, and he kind of like, he basically winks when he's like, yeah, I know a thing know. or two about carpentry. <laughs> yeah, I got this. I made George Lucas's shells for his shelves. Um, yeah, I totally agree. And he's also like. A movie like that, a big mainstream movie, would usually just pay lip service to the Amish way of life. But I think here it really makes a credible case and really treats it treats it with a ton of respect. And and by the way, the fact that you know nobody wanted to make the movie even once Harrison Ford was attached to it, right? So um, it, and that's specifically because it was shot in rural Pennsylvania, and who cared? They didn't make thrillers there, and um, you know. Mayor of Easttown was coming for them. Sorry, that's not rural. But, yeah. yeah, that's right. I think a lot has changed since then. But John Book Harrison... of Easttown. Nah. Um, Richard, not to put you on the spot, but I feel like I saw you tweeting about watching some other Harrison Ford non-franchise movies while we were also doing Witness. Did this send you on a uh, on a Harrison Ford deep dive? I just happened to have a double feature uh, this past weekend because I watched Witness um, and then I went with some friends to the Alamo Drafthouse in Brooklyn to see The Fugitive on the big screen. Um, And it was just a nice reminder of what Harrison Ford does outside of franchise filmmaking, you know, um, and how effective he is at what he calls physical acting, which is, you know, doing all of his own stunt work. But I think what really, you know, why he got an Oscar nomination for Witness is that we also see this other side of him, this kind of, it's it, it, it uses all parts of the Harrison Ford buffalo, you know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's not just the, the action, it's also this humanism. And I think that it's funny watching it now, because I'd never seen it until this weekend. Um, 
it's funny watching it now because it's like watching Pulp Fiction now where it's like so it, it so many movies like it happened afterward that mm-hmm. almost the yeah. kind of original thing seems almost kind of like trite and cliched. I mean, I still loved the movie, but like because there have been a lot of like cop or whoever goes into sure. other community to, you know, a case brings them into this thing and, you know, not and you know, it's just Doc Hollywood guns. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but because it's Peter Weir, because. And it won for screenplay, I believe. Like, it, yeah. it it has this kind of humanist nuance to it that I think really makes it feel like more than just a flight from bad cop kind of thriller. To think that a big Harrison Ford movie uh, at the height of his career takes its time to just kind of stand in awe at a barn raising uh-huh. like that's and it's a lovely scene kind of reminiscent of like when we first see the boat in Titanic. Like it's this kind of grand beauteous sort of moment um, that, you know, we wouldn't see in a sort of a, a current day, like Liam Neeson kind of action thriller, you know, which would employ the same kind of gruff goodness. Um, so yeah, it's a really interestingly shaded film. They're really only kind of, the action is really only bookended. I mean, there's that one kind of brief shootout in the parking garage, but it's really all leading up to this one final confrontation that is so beautifully staged, especially that kind of famous shot of the three guys walking with their guns from their car down the hill toward the farm. Um, yeah, they use those hills so well. Like in the opening yeah. in the opening credits where they're showing everybody kind of walking, um, I guess, to the funeral, um, like Peter Weir's name shows up over this like gorgeous hillside thing. It just it feels like it appreciates the like the beauty of this place from the very beginning. And I think, you know, if you think about like 1985 in the United States, like the urban life was sort of held in, in film and in, in politics as this kind of hellscape, which was made because of white flight and divestment from cities. And it was a real big political issue that I think we're still trying of untangling and trying to reckon with. And and the way this film offsets the sort of grit of Philadelphia with this bucolic kind of Eden, you know, place. And while, yes, ignoring some of the problems inherent to the Amish community, which we have seen in documentaries like uh, about Rumspringas and stuff like that. Um, I think they probably didn't know at that point. Right. I think, you know... Yeah, but that implies maybe not doing due diligence of research. But but um, well, in 1985, I think people's interest in the Amish community was tiny. I mean, I think they were considered just way out there, and and I think you know the fact that I mean, I remember seeing the movie, and uh, you know, we really knew nothing at that point. There were no there were no um, Netflix documentaries. Yeah, I wanted to zoom back to the barn raising scene and say, like, isn't it wild that there are two iconic barn raising scenes in cinema history this and some brides or some brothers i was like (laughs) there should be more bring do another one there should be more barn raising scenes i think it's so cinematic you can get all your characters in one place it's Uh, they're they're doing something you get to watch the finished product it's it's great i love it i also we haven't talked about how sexy he is in the movie and i feel like i have a thesis written about this yeah i mean especially compared to the fugitive where he's got that awful beard the whole movie or most of the movie and um Anyway, talk about that, if you would. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, saying that Harrison Ford was sexy in the 80s, it feels like a really obvious thing to say. But I think in Indiana Jones, in Star Wars, in Blade Runner, like, there's just not that much attention. It's the way he's filmed in this. That's such a big part of it. Like, that scene where... Kelly McGillis is the one who's naked and they're kind of gazing at each other across a doorway. But the look on his face captures so much. It's just like kind of 
reveling in his movie star presence where he doesn't have to say anything for you to know what's going through his mind. And the same with like the one scene where they finally kiss and it's completely silent. Um, There's just so much charisma that exudes from him, which you know from Han Solo. And like obviously Han Solo is the character who kind of set the template for this. But I was just amazed at how much he could do with so much silence and so much like charm and care. Like it's, it's his paternal attitude toward Samuel that like really helps build that appeal and build the relationship between them. But then he's also forging this genuine report with her. They have that great scene where they're dancing on the car radio in the barn. I just was uh, kind of blown away to realize all over again what a force of nature he was at that point. And what I like about the romance aspect of the film is that, you know, the way the film ends is this kind of like they've, they've, uh, they're parting ways, you know, he's driving off and the guy is walking back to the farm, you know, it's this very sort of like ships in the night kind of moment. Like, I'm glad that they don't like have one of them uproot their lives entirely to like fall into the other's life. You know, yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's a subtle kind of, the romance is kind of used as a broader look at like, two seemingly clashing cultures just kind of understanding each other and appreciating each other. Um, Mm -hmm. I would argue that like Kelly McGillis and her family probably appreciate the world that Harrison Ford comes from a lot less than he does theirs, but, (laughs) but they at least, you know, sort of see him, you know, that he's, he's a good English, you know, he also has this great screenplay and, you know, obviously Quentin Tarantino is a fantastic writer, but it's, it's less obvious that a screenplay like Witness is fantastic because it's so subtle and it doesn't show off and it doesn't have people screaming passages from the Bible while they um, threaten to murder someone. Wow, um, I didn't realize we were going to go hard on Quentin Tarantino. No, he's, he's great, but he is a showy, showy. He's like David Mamet or somebody. He's incredibly stylistic. He's demanding to be noticed. You can practically hear him typing as people talk. And um, that's great if you love it, but I think there's something nice about seeing a screenplay that is simply subtle and perfect. And um, even the scene, look, this is a scene sort of to Richard's point about what's been done again or before, like the scene where he's wounded and she's taking care of him and changing his bandages, that's something we've seen in many movies since then. Um, But even that is done really beautifully and shot beautifully, and um, it gives you just enough of your mainstream action romance kind of moments but just elevates them i think so much and having you know the schaefer character played by joseph summer like at the end not die in a blaze of gunfire or whatever just to kind of like give up and realize that mm-hmm. he's like could have had a complete moral collapse and like yeah. there that's a sort of humanist touch too you know that there isn't like that all all that john book wants is for this to end he doesn't want to like yeah. murder for revenge it's all just very like sad and kind of pathetic yeah, his, the way of life has been conquered. As we know, it, it was not in fact conquered, but in the movie it was. I had seen Witness before um, a couple times, I think, but I had forgotten how it ended. I couldn't remember like what happened with the, with the romance in the end. And I was like, you know, I, I, I hope they're not together in the end because... It, that that then puts it into a genre that Katie and, like, and I like to call Brief Encounters. In mm-hmm. fact, I was mad that we didn't do this when we did the Screen Drafts podcast. And I'm mad that I didn't think about Witness for this. But this this genre of romance where like two people come together for a time, but it just doesn't make sense for them to stay together. And then they part not because someone dies. It's just they make a decision to part ways. And how much more valuable that romance, that brief romance seems sort of 
for that ending. Because if yeah. he had stayed or she had left, like, then you're just left with these thoughts of like, well, that's not going to work out <laughs> like one way or another, <laughs> you know? And in this way, it's just this like beautiful, perfect thing that exists within the bounds of this, of this movie, yeah. the story. I think, I think it's the only brief encounter that ends uh, where, you know, it's ending by fixing a birdhouse. I think that's the only example. Of genre. <laughs> that's well, a great well, yeah. moment too. Maybe. It's a symbolic birdhouse. Love, love it. But but she stays because she truly believes in her way of life. And the, I think yeah. the implication is he leaves because he simply can't do anything else. I don't know that he would make a big moral stand for, you know, murdering corrupt cops in the city. But, you know, it's realistic. And even if, like, eventually, 10 years later, they got cell phones, she wouldn't get one. So they couldn't even stay in touch. So it's just like they have to they have to part. I did wonder if you could make this today, given the way we talk about representation of communities on screen now. Like, I I read on Wikipedia that, like, there were Amish people who kind of, like, allowed for the filming. They filmed in real Amish country, so there was, like, kind of a blessing from the community, but they didn't appear on screen because that was their choice. Um, but I, like, Kelly McGill is playing an Amish woman this way. I I think you would probably get raked over the coals for it now, and I can't, I don't, I don't want to say that that's right or wrong, but it is interesting to watch how it was received then versus how it would be now. Yeah. I mean, again, back then, there was probably absolutely no understanding that they could even try or where would you find Amish actors, whatever. They probably cast people as extras, but I don't know that the Amish would appear in a movie like you said anyway. I mean, I'm surprised that they did participate with it in any degree, and I'm sure that they got crap for it in their own community. Yeah, I think there was some backlash against it from from people in the kind of... uh, in the area, but uh, yeah, according according to the controversy section of its Wikipedia page, there was some backlash against it, which you're all welcome to go read yourselves. Um, but it does seem like its legacy has held up pretty well over the years. The Kelly McGillis of it all is fascinating, too. That, that she was like this huge, huge star, you know, at this time with Top Gun and this and then later The Accused. Like, she was a big, big deal and then didn't walk away from acting, but really like walked away from film stardom pretty Mm -hmm. early into her, you know, kind of ascendancy as an Oscar nominee. And like, you know, she was a big deal and she's really good in this. How, you know, however, you know, troubling her casting might have been. But like, it's one of those things where you're like watching it and wondering kind of where she went. And, And I think there hasn't really ever been, I know she's given interviews, I guess, about like her dissatisfaction with certain things and, and whatnot. But, um, was it purely her decision or was it one of those things where like Hollywood was finished with her? I don't actually know the answer to you. Supposedly, she she did a movie called Cat Chaser. This is, like, on Wikipedia. It's also, you know, other interviews. But, like, that just put her off the whole thing. And she she kept acting, but, like, just didn't want to be that kind of mainstream star, I guess. There were probably other factors, yes, that, you know, Hollywood sexism, et cetera, et cetera. But, I don't know, she's just an interesting, she's an interesting figure, you know. Uh, this big star who just kind of, bowed out a la Deborah Winger or something. And it was, it was wild. Like watching this, I thought I understood the timeline. I was like, wow, they got, they got Kelly McGillis from Top Gun and they got Alexander Goodenough from Die Hard. And I was <laughs> like, but in in truth, both those films came after this, like witnesses, the urtext of these, of these actors. I was like, and Danny okay. Glover a year before Lethal Weapon, I think. And you, yeah. I mean, you know, the size of that role the size of that role tells you the lethal weapon hasn't come out yet because that's like a solid supporting part that Danny Glover would not have. And I think, and this is the same year as The Color Purple. Right. Which he's also in. 
Yeah, I think I think col- the color purple sort of launched him into uh, another level. Uh, is this where we get to talk about the color purple and what was going on at the Oscars? This yeah, year, no, Katie? Joanna, you did um, the kind of the deep dives on the respective Oscar races of these movies has been uh, part of the fun of it. So, Joanna, tell us what was going on with this Oscar race where Witness was nominated for but did not win Best Picture. Yeah, Witness was nominated and it was like it was like well regarded, but no one seriously considered it as like a top top contender. It was like everyone likes this film and we're glad it's nominated, but it wasn't like this is going to win everything because out of Africa and the color purple got I think each 11 nominations and out of Africa won best picture and best director uh, for Sidney Pollack and stuff like that but what the so I I just like nosing around for whatever the controversy was that year and the controversy (laughs) that year was the color purple because this was this was Spielberg's uh after after you know getting snubbed caught on camera being snubbed for Jaws and stuff like that and being called like the guy who's ruining Hollywood with all of his blockbusters and stuff like that he made the color purple as an sort of overt awards bid and though it got a ton of nominations a lot of acting nominations um he was not nominated for director and that snub was so egregious that the Directors Guild then gave him the Directors Guild prize. And in his speech, he acknowledged that. He was like, I think some of you were just making a point, but I'll take it. Thanks so much. Um, so it's Ben Affleck and Argo before Ben Affleck and Argo. And so then some people thought that that meant the color purple would win. But there's like a, a lot of contemporaneous articles in 1986 about like how white and old and racist the Academy is and how like the color purple in in the intervening years you know, obviously it's, it's based on a book by, uh, you know, a black woman, but like, you know, the fact that like, I don't know, Steven Spielberg's framing of that story has come to question. But at the time, of course, it was like considered a very like progressive, interesting movie with interesting roles for a lot of black women, three of whom were nominated, you know? And so, um, but then there was like backlash too, from some people thought it was racist. Some people thought it made black men look bad, like all this sort of stuff like that. So there was like, it was that, it was that sort of classic, problematization that's not a word of of uh I think it is actually uh, okay great nailed it um, <laughs> <laughs> of this film I don't know it's interesting and like and, and something that uh I was reading that that really delighted me is actually uh, something that Johanna wrote up for our website a couple years ago Angelica Houston won the supporting actress prize for Pritzi's Honor and uh Apparently she's she claims Oprah has never forgiven her for beating her uh, to that Oscar and like she was never invited on Oprah and Oprah once like sort of uh, cut her off very coldly at a party and she's like I think she's never forgiven me and I'm like I don't know if that's true but I kind of like that. Uh, and Oprah Jill was Houston. really good in that movie. She's great in that movie. So is Whoopi. Whoopi Goldberg's great in that movie. You know. So we haven't talked about Out of Africa. Did did. Um, which I remember liking, but it's certainly no witness. But it it won, right? It it did. Yeah. Yes, I talk about a movie you would never make today. Uh, no, I liked Out of Africa when I saw it as a as a kid. But like, a yeah, you would never make it now. And B, it feels very down the middle. Nineteen eighty six win, right? And in fact, it's often held as like one of the exemplars of like bad Oscar bait that that works you know, that, that like that succeeds at its you know sort of cynical intentions it's also I think sometimes held as like an example of like Meryl Streep's uh <laughs> over egged accent acting yeah it's like it gets held 
it and the English patient, which I think is unfair because I like the English patient a lot, get kind of held up as like big bloated Oscar winners. I mean, in the 80s, like you have Chariots of Fire, you've got Gandhi, you've got Last Emperor. Like there's all these like very large productions that beat things like Broadcast News or E.T., like movies that people actually like really remember and love. There was a lot of that going on then. Oh, that's something else I was going to say about Spielberg. You you reminded me of the E.T. When he made Color Purple, he was really still thought of as a a director of fairy tale sci-fi stuff. So him taking on something, a text that was so important, um, people who who were disposed to be cynical, that was one of the reasons. Um, yeah, the reading back at all the kind of stress around giving Spielberg an Oscar, because like it just, you know, it was like, well, you know, he's made the color purple. Like, should we reward him? Like, he wants an Oscar, clearly. And I just feel this gratitude that like it didn't happen and that, you know, he comes back with Schindler's List. He comes back with like a lot of other Oscar regarded movies. Like, the, the Spielberg Oscar run happened when it should have in the but end. But he I was think. really trying. Like, then he did Empire of the Sun. And I think Empire <laughs> of the Sun, like, also didn't land the way that he wanted it to. And so then he was like, F it and sort of went back to like doing some more Major genre Oscar. stuff. You know, but. <laughs> But it's like it's so funny to see Spielberg as this like reading some of his interviews and speeches that he gave in 86 at the time like that he was just sort of like I've been accused of ruining Hollywood with my blockbusters and I just I'm just trying to make film that I love and I'm like this sounds exactly what like Kevin Feige says when Scorsese and like other people dick at him and like and Spielberg's guilty of that so it's like you know live long enough to see yourself become the villainized people thought Scorsese was the like vulgar guy yeah. ruining Hollywood at one point same as it ever was this is a complete tangent but um, in 85, Geraldine Page won for the trip to Bountable, Best Actress. Um, mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, my dad brought that video home from like the university media library for us to watch on like a Saturday night. And my sister and I were so bored to tears <laughs> that for literally decades afterward... <laughs> It's referenced in my house as a kind of like stand-in for like bad movie that dad suggests. <laughs> We're like, oh, is this going to be another trip to Bountiful? Uh, I'm sure it's a lovely movie. I have not seen it since I was a child, but um, we were just, it was, it's an old lady on a bus. Like we were just like, what is going on? Um, but you know, she, but she was someone who was like long overdue for a win and it was really exciting. And you know, there was kind of, it's interesting that she won and that like, Houston won for, for a movie directed by her dad. Like there was a lot of like old Hollywood kind of swirling around this year, as I think evidenced by what won Best Picture too. Don Amici won for Cocoon. Mm-hmm. And he was younger than Brad Pitt, probably. Probably. Oh my gosh. No, that's wow. what they always say about what's his face, Wilford Brimley. Uh, Wilford Brimley, yeah, the Brimley yeah, that's line. That's the classic. Yeah. <laughs> younger than uh, Brad Pitt. I, so as part of Googling around this, this is a really a tangent, but I tweeted this uh, screenshot of River Phoenix at the... Um, the nominees luncheon and the big class photo from the year after this, but Vulture has this rundown of all the nominees luncheon group photos, which are really incredible. And they pointed out that this year, this 1985 Oscars, that Meg Tilly and Eric Roberts were both nominated, and they both of their siblings have also been Oscar nominated, Jennifer Tilly and Julia Roberts, which is just that's just a fun fact that they were the they are the like less famous Oscar nominated siblings of other Oscar nominees. I remember interviewing Julia Roberts one time very, 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 very early, like before she had any kind of name at all, and reminding myself, don't just talk about her famous brother. That will be insulting to her. Wow. So that's, that was that's tough. A, that's definitely a, a brag on some level, Jeff. Yeah, it's a huge, I'm not sure what kind of brag. And Emma Roberts was not even yet a gleam in, in Eric Roberts' eye, you know? <laughs> uh, Hirschholt Award winner Emma Roberts, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, well, Witness is not on a streaming platform that I can find, but I rented it easily from iTunes. I could not more heartily recommend it. Uh, so I, good. I, I, this is my first time seeing it, and I just enjoyed it massively. I do also really want to rewatch The Fugitive, though, despite your diss, Jeff. Uh, I no, love no, no. I think it's too. a really good movie. Yeah. The Fugitive is really fun. Um, it was really fun to see it on a big screen. It's crazy, like Jane Lynch, Julianne Moore. Like, there's just some funny. Uh, smaller performances. He wears an exact an outfit in it that I think Joanna is an exact outfit from Regarding Henry. It's like the same <laughs> blazer. Like, um, oh, also by the way, Witness. If you do subscribe, is on Cinemax. Oh, that, that just reminds me of those like photo shoots that they did for I think it was Blade Runner or maybe it was that like whatever one that he did with. Um, Josh Hartnett, where it was like, it just looked like Harrison Ford just wore his own Hollywood clothes Hollywood homicide to set. is what you're Hollywood talking about. Yeah, that like, that he just wore his own clothes to set, and everyone's like, like, I think, I think what I am thinking of, though, is the Blade Runner, where like, Ryan Gosling is definitely in costume, and Harrison Ford is definitely in a gray t-shirt, and you're like, Harrison Ford just wore that to set, right? And so I feel like he was just wearing his, like, home blazers to yeah. set in, like, regarding yeah, Henry. Calista and, likes it. Yeah, uh, Harrison Ford is secretly, like, Diane Keaton. <laughs> like, we don't think of him that way, where she wears all her own clothes. But, uh, There's definitely yeah. a point in his career. You can imagine him being like, "Yeah, I'll do the movie, but I won't do costume." They're like, "Okay, fine. Yeah, well, fine. if it'll get you in the movie, if it get you on set for two days, you don't have to change." What clothes. was the Polanski movie that people say is better that he did that's better than I remember being the um, Frantic Panic Frantic something like frantic. that. Oh, yeah. Frantic. Oh, like Harrison Ford. I'm getting frantic. Like that's another on one. Yeah. Oh my God! I never got that reference until this exact <laughs> moment. Wait, what's Can the reference? That's what- <laughs> <laughs> the bare naked ladies one week lyrics. Katie, if you ever want me to do a master class on what all those lyrics mean, uh, I'm happy to do that that's, for you. I mean, I don't think that's how I learned who Kurosawa was, but I think that song came out the same summer that Kurosawa died. So I was just like, oh, that's a name that I know now. Thank you, bare naked ladies. Speaking uh, of Kurosawa, he was nominated for best director instead of Steven Spielberg, which is fine. But what's wild about 1986 is that Japan did not put up, uh, is it Ron or Ran? I don't know, uh, for their uh, film that foreign film that year. Uh, and wow. Eric Roberts was nominated for a film that was based on a screenplay by Kurosawa. Wow. What movie was that? Uh, Runaway Train. Him and John Voight were both nominated for a little action thriller. Eric Roberts. That's a, a lot story. Of year. That's, a lot a, of... that's a biography for somebody to write. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from. Whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, Joanna, we have your Marvel Spectacular. You talked to Elizabeth Olsen. You talked to Sebastian Stan about WandaVision and Falcon and the Winter Soldier, respectively. Um, is there anything you you want people to know? They know the shows. They know who these characters are. Um, what were these conversations like? Well, let's start with Sebastian Stan and say that like before the internet was graced with the image of him as Tommy Lee, I got to talk to him and he was covered in tattoos and he was like, you absolutely cannot show anyone in this video uh, because no one had seen him as Tommy Lee yet. So I got to see him as Tommy Lee before anyone else. And just so you can like, so we talk, we reference his tattoos. That's why I'm mentioning it. We reference his tattoos a couple of times. So that's what that's in reference to. But he did have a shirt on when you spoke to him. 
as far as I can recall. Sadly, but yeah. um, the uh, it might also help for the visual to know he was like twirling a drumstick. The, it, this is true. Like almost the entire time he was talking to me because I think he's practicing his drumming skills. So he was like twirling a drumstick and talking to me about um, playing Bucky Barnes for like close to a decade. And it's, it's a really interesting conversation because like, first of all, he talks about... Um, his audition process, uh, which is always really interesting, I think, in the in the Marvel Universe, because he auditioned for Steve Rogers and all of that stuff. Who didn't? Um, but then also talking about his character's proximity to Wakanda, what Chadwick Boseman means to him, what it means to him to be associated with like the Wakanda narrative and all that sort of stuff like that. So um, that is our conversation with Sebastian Stan. And then Elizabeth Olsen is really interesting to me, another person who's been playing a character for so long, because she talked about how after working on the uh, as an executive producer on her show, Sorry for Your Loss, um, that she felt empowered in a way that she never had in a Marvel project. And so she was just like, in her words, like piping up on everything and getting really opinionated in a way she had never let herself be before. And I think to extremely good effect, because I mean, WandaVision is just like an incredible, I think, um, experience. So let us hear from these longtime Marvel players, Sebastian Stan and Elizabeth Olsen. So I want to start by asking you, I was just talking to the great Sarah Finn, casting director, a couple weeks ago, and she yeah. was remembering your audition from, you know, over a decade ago and oh, how, boy. you know, you auditioned for Steve, but the thing she likes to say about that is that, but then we saw this darkness in him, decided <laughs> that he should be Bucky. So I'm wondering if you can, what you, if anything, you remember about that process. It was a wild time because I had made like three different audition tapes. I was shooting this tiny movie in Germany and I was making tapes, sending them from there. And I made a tape for Steve, all, all for Steve. And, and, they were, and they didn't say no, they kept giving me notes. So I was redoing them. And then I didn't hear anything for a while. And I was going to actually go to Romania, where I'm from, after Germany. And instead, like, this is where I'm like, I don't know if, you know, life could have gone a very different way if I'd gone. I don't know. But instead, I, I actually ended up coming back to L.A. And then I heard that they were like, oh, you're in L.A. So then, so then I finally went in for like a fourth audition you know, in Sarah's office. Mm -hmm. And I did the audition there with her. And then they called me to do a screen test and which was for Steve. And, and I was like a screen test. I'd never even, I did one other screen test in my life, which was for Star Trek with JJ Abrams. And it was like in, and I obviously did not get that, but, like, <laughs> <laughs> but it was like in a, you know, it was like in an office with, with a regular office. I mean, this apparently was, we were actually gonna shoot like a scene. You shoot like a whole scene, you put on a costume and everything. You know, I put on this 1940s, like whatever that suit that Chris has in the, in the movie, in the first Captain America movie. And like, you know, you have hair and makeup done. Like, it's like a big tease, but you still don't have the job, you know? <laughs> right, it's, right. it's crazy. And then you go in there and you're like, oh my God, lighting and the camera. And, and I remember doing that and it was me and like a bunch of other people. And, and as soon as I got out of that, like four days later, they were like, you're not, it's not going to go any further. You know, you always hear that. It's not going any further. <laughs> and then, uh, so I was kind of like, ah, oh, fuck, after all that, you know, I was really bummed. 
And then I got a call saying, but maybe you sh- maybe we can talk about this character. And I, and I never even knew anything about James Bucky Barnes. Cause what I did, like, even for the, I never knew anything about Captain America. I never knew anything about, you know, I never read the comics. So I, and I didn't want to read any of it before the audition. Anyway, there was no script. There was just like the scene. And so I really didn't know anything about Bucky Barnes. Interesting that Sarah said that thing about, you know, the darkness in you, um, whatever she means by that. But uh, when did you know that you weren't just going to be playing James Bucky Barnes, that you were, you were definitely going to be playing the Winter Soldier? Well, so we had that meeting, right? Like where they were, they were like telling you about James Bucky Barnes. Again, I don't have the job. Like I'm like listening <laughs> to them going, are they like, sounds fantastic but like what like are they just saying if i'm interested i mean yeah i am interested like i want to be in a movie (laughs) but um they were telling me about his story and they said yeah and then you know he becomes the winter soldier he ends up sort of being captured and he falls off this train he uh, loses an arm gets captured then they brainwash him they turn him into this assassin and he comes back and you know eventually you know he comes back around, he gets his memories. Like they, they told me the whole story, but that was it. There was no more. And then we did, then we were shooting the first movie and I fall off the train in the movie. And I realized when I went in for a costume fitting, they had given me a costume that was missing the left arm. So I was like, okay, that means that they're gonna, they're gonna do it, you know, like, and then suddenly I, we were going to shoot the scene and I had the costume that had both arms. And I was like, uh, why is not the arm? And they're like, oh, you know what? They just decided that they'll see if anything, you know, they'd rather have both arms just in case and stuff. And I was like, oh, fuck, maybe they're not going to do it. Right. You know, so then I fell off the train in the movie and the movie comes out. Everything's, you know, cool. 2011. I'm at the premiere of Captain America, the first <laughs> Avengers. And meanwhile, like, I'm not, you know, I'm still like really fighting for a job. Like 2011 was one of the hardest years of my life. Like, you know, I was going to this premiere, but I, I like really need, like it was the, you know, I needed a job. I was running out of money. Like it was like all this stuff was happening. And, and then it really wasn't until I want to say like, whenever the, the San Diego, the Comic-Con in San Diego happened, a friend of mine called me and, and said, dude, they just, uh, they, they just uh, let out a new uh, title for the sequel. And it says Captain America, the Winter Soldier in it. And I was like, no way. That's how you found out. <laughs> That's how I sort of found out. And then a call happened and we were like, okay, we're going to do the sequel. That's how that happened. I mean, I, I never knew. That's wild. I'm interested because you said you said something in an interview sort of before this season dropped about this idea of playing a character for 10, 11 years and this idea of meeting this character at various stages in your own life, like who you are now meeting Bucky Barnes versus who you were then meeting mm. Bucky Barnes. And I just think it's really interesting that when you first met him, you're, you're circling one of the worst years of your life, like it's coming. And I'm curious, you know, when you're meeting Bucky now, What's different about you or what's different about your approach as you connect with that character now? Well, I mean, I think, I think the only thing, uh, what's different is, is the level of experience, right? Like I feel 
I've grown so much as a, obviously as a human, you know, from experience, but also as just as an actor, like how I'm approaching things now is just on such a deeper, more specific level than I did 10 years ago. You know, I mean, like I'd gone to school and I knew what I was doing and, you know, but, but then like, I think you just learn yourself better. You know, you learn how to access yourself in, in different ways. So I feel for me, the work is always deeper now. Like, so I, I guess that sort of changes approaching the character, but also the character had, had evolved, you know, cause he'd sort of gone from through that whole winter soldier journey. And then we kind of had him, you know, on these, redemption paths like all through Captain America Civil War and into the Infinity War Endgame stuff but it was really for me like the the Winter Soldier movie and the Civil War movie were were probably the biggest character development moments that he had right because yeah. he, he didn't really in the Endgame Infinity War he was there and and it was still it was still traveling towards something and and really the show now like this show was the first time we kind of really dove into more things with him deeply. Um, and yeah, I just think it's just a life experience that kind of come back to a character. And in a way, you know, you add to it. Like, I, I don't know what filming, I mean, it's not like a boy's life, right? That movie that Ethan Hawke did, Yeah, but they came back through the years and, there was a maturity there and a growth. And I, I can't help but think that to some extent, if I sat down and I watched Captain America, first Avenger, and I watched all the movies with, that this character is in, including our show, I, I, I a hundred percent would probably see a character that has grown because the actor is playing him as, you know. Well, I'm curious for this show specifically, you know, when they, when they talk to you about doing it, what arc, did they sort of track out for, for Bucky? Where do you feel like it was important for Bucky to land at the end of this series? Um, I think we all discussed that we wanted to find a way back for him towards a more stable place or uh, a better sense of self. You know, he's got to own everything he's experienced. He's got to kind of like, the winter soldier persona per se is it's like a demon. That's a part of him that he's somehow come to terms with and, and he's learned how to turn into a strength rather than it, you know, suddenly like he's just going to be cured of this thing because right. they are comic book heroes, but like, and some more than others, but they all have these emotional complexities to them. And, and, and one of the things that I love, like I was lucky with, this character is that he really does have this sort of relatable arc, you know, um, we've all kind of go through, we, we all have to like face our pasts. We were all haunted by things that have happened to us, trauma, things that we're trying to like overcome or, you know, people deal with addictions, people deal with, you know, so, so there's all these pieces to that character kind of as he's like trying to find a better way of life, you know, and, fit into the world better and also give him, give him, give him a new life, so to speak, uh, without, you know, in the, in the shadow of Steve Rogers, right. You know, and, and exploring how that character now can be in the world, you know, um, 
and probably function even for audiences, you know, without Steve Rogers. I think for both of them, that was, that was also uh, another piece. Yeah. It's interesting because I, you know, talking to Malcolm and talking to Kari, they both said that, um, and, and you've said this as well, that basically your junket press tour dynamic with Anthony was a big inspiration for the dynamic that they wanted to capture in the show, right? <laughs> yeah, <I bet. laughs> and, but I'm curious for you, how challenging is that, you know, that they encourage some improv on set and stuff like that, but how challenging is that for you? Because I see plenty of Anthony Mackie and Sam Wilson, but you and Bucky are further apart, I think, personality-wise. So how hard yeah. is it for you to sort of bring your natural personality into this other character that you've been playing? Well, I just, I, but again, like for me, like I knew, I knew this character really well. Um, like, I feel like the preparation that before you start shooting is the most crucial time ever because, and as you know, like with what I'm currently dealing with, <laughs> like, it's just like, or you can see, others can't <laughs> yet. Um, it's insane to try to become someone else or what, like you're always trying to find ways to relate. You're always trying to understand it. The whole thing is a big sort of study project. Uh, with this character, I mean, I was very, yeah, I was very protective, you know, while we were shooting and there were things that we were trying out that, that had been tried out on the page that weren't working, you know, and things that needed to be reshaped, you know, with us now being kind of like getting into the dialogue, getting it, getting there on set, you know, dynamics. And, and it was great that we had, we were allotted the freedom, Anthony and I, to really take what was on the page and make it our own, you know, and kind of bring our own experience from the movies to this, you know, and there are times where I was like, Hey, listen, like he wouldn't do that. Or he wouldn't say that here. Or he would yeah. do this. Or it was, he, we haven't earned this yet. You know, I think I can't speak for everybody, but I, you know, for me, I, I wanted to really explore a different side of him. Obviously one that was comedic, with Anthony, right? The dynamic of what that is. And it really, I started looking at it and going like, oh my God, they're like, the odd, it's the odd couple. That's what it is. Like Anthony's, you know, Walter Matthau and I'm Jack Lemon. Like that's, or it's like the other way around. Like that's the bickering thing. That's the comedy, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and Bucky is a guy out of time. Who's like an old guy trapped in his body <laughs> trying to fucking figure out what the hell's going on. And, yeah. and uh, that's the comedy, like that's where, and that's also where the truth is with him, you know? Um, but I was, I was like always reminding them being like, guys, just remember he was a fucking assassin. He can't, you know, he's always gonna have this chip on his shoulder, you know, mm -hmm. to some extent. And, yeah. you know, and also he's really gonna, he, he's at the beginning of the season, he's coming from a very defensive place because his his sort of big purpose up until that point right like had been i know i'm not a perfect individual right but i know this guy my best friend the guy who's been by my side since i fucking remember anything steve rogers is a good man and i'm gonna do everything i can to try to make sure that guy's okay mm -hmm. you know and and follow his lead and and i know like that was like the the moral compass steve rogers was his moral compass right and now you've taken that out. So he's going kind of, it is a little bit of like 
well, now what do I compare? Like, what do I base myself off of? Like, what do I, what's my target? What's my purpose? What's my direction? What's my sense of, where's my GPS? You know, like yeah. it's a little bit like that. And, yeah. and he's in a very defensive place at the beginning because he's, he hasn't confronted the emotional implications of that yet. And throughout the season, obviously he does, you know, but you see that he sort sort of like, instead of confronting, he's kind of punting certain questions and fears like further down the road and kind of trying to drive an agenda and, and for a minute, you know, before he actually takes a step back and go and goes, wait a minute, what does Sam Wilson really want? Like who, you know, mm-hmm. who is Sam and, and therefore who am I? And like, what do we really want? And what is it really about? You know? And so I guess those are all the things we're tackling. Well, I, I do have a question about that because the la- the lack of Steve, like the Steve's absence is sort of looming over this, right? Because mm-hmm. he's an absence for Sam and he's an absence for, for Bucky. And I'm curious, the show seems to want to keep it very open where Steve is. Is he alive? Is he on the moon? Is he, you know, whatever. But for your understanding of how you're playing Bucky, in what way is Steve gone for Bucky? Does he like have no access to him anymore? You know, I always thought there was a conversation that took place, you know, before that scene that the final scene of Avengers Endgame, where you see Steve Rogers much older, and there's a sort of rites of passage, you know, that that happens. That I always feel I always thought there was a conversation between him and Bucky before that happened. Yeah. You know, and in that conversation where it was a Bucky, you don't have to worry anymore. I found my my peace. You know, I'm I'm uh, I, I I finally got that life I wanted. You know, I, I took I'm taking one from me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm good. Mm-hmm. Now it's your turn to go and take one for you. Yeah. You know, we've both served this thing, the shield, this ideal, this whatever you want to call it. We've done our time, like let's find our life before, like, while we still have it, you know? And, and I think Bucky kind of honored that. And I think, and I think essentially it was goodbye. It was like, okay, buddy, like, you know, it was a good run. Like let's good luck and, and, and let's go and see what happens, you know? And so I don't think it's, does Bucky know where Steve Rogers is? (laughs) That's a good (laughs) question. Um, Maybe, maybe not, you know, uh, I mean, I, I don't even know if I have the answer to that question. And I, I definitely don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, so I, I treated the season very much like, all right, this is where it's at, you know, and how good I don't have to thank God. I'm, I'm not, I'm not standing over a coffin, you know, I'm, 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 I'm looking at my friend, who's smiling into the sunset and, and, and being like, yo, I had a great life. Like I'm good. Yeah. You know? So now what is it about? You know yeah. what? It's about the legacy he left behind, you know, I'll protect that. But again, he's not making it about Bucky. He's not making it about Bucky. He's again, making it about Steve. And of course, as you see the season, Sam goes, no, you got to look at you. You got to, you got to make it about you. Yeah. What do you want? I think that scene in the penultimate episode between Bucky and Sam, sort of, you know, uh, shield training and and discussing 
their mistakes, their, their future, all of that, um, was so powerful. And I'm, I'm curious, um, did you film that before the COVID break or after the COVID break? Do you remember? That that? was before. That was before. And, and it was one of the uh, episode five was like really the first one we we were filming. I mean, we all, the whole thing was like a movie. We never broke up the episodes like, but that sequence in, at Sam's house, uh, was all at the very beginning of the, of the show, you know, and, and it was crazy because we were like shooting a really important scene very quickly, not having had, you know, a lot of the journey yet. Yeah. It's, it's just interesting because that moment where, you know, Bucky says like, you know, Steve and I talked about giving the shield to you, but we didn't consider the ramifications of what that would mean for a black man in America. And I was curious, you know, if that's a scene you filmed, um, before the last summer or after, and it was before. That but was I, literally know. probably day three. Yeah, it's wild. You know, and and I think that one of the things that was so wild is obviously we were shooting the show and then, you know, we were supposed to be the first show out and stuff. And then the pandemic happened, all the tragic events of the pandemic everything you know that was happening in this country everything we were witnessing all the way up until this january you know what i mean and we were going my god like how how relevant our show sort of suddenly even became even more you know because there was a lot of questions that were being asked even before anything had happened yeah Obviously, Falcon and Winter Soldier is supposed to be the first show out from Marvel. Uh, this is Marvel uh, Marvel under Feige, at least, figuring out how to make TV from the movies. And there's a lot that Feige has said about we're considering this sort of a six-episode movie, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious, for you, as you are figuring out your character, how does it? who do you go to on set? when you want to get answers to questions you have about Bucky? Are you going to Kari? Are you going to Malcolm? <laughs> you go to Kevin directly? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Kevin and I, you know, I, I've, yeah, I, I remember having a really good long chat with him before we started, mm-hmm. you know, just to, just, just talking about Bucky and, and kind of like, you know, making sure we were all on the same page and everything. And, and I loved that. I love talking to him. I mean, he's, He's like an encyclopedia, you know? I mean, there's just so that he, there's so much he knows um, about everything. Um, so I, that was my main source. And then, and then Kari and I spent a lot of time talking. You mentioned getting into character sort of beforehand and, and referencing sort of what's going on on your, uh, with yourself right now, your skin, your tattoos. Um, but um, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about the process of getting into shape for Bucky to play Bucky, to like be in Marvel shape. Um, is that part of your process for, for reconnecting with Bucky after a time away from him? Well, yeah. I mean, unless a role requires a certain kind of, whether it's like gaining weight or losing weight or whatever, I usually, I, I for my own, like I just, the, the workout regimen has just always been part of my life and, and really started with Mar like with, this character in Marvel 10 years ago, you know, I mean, just is when I really, really, I was trying so hard to get into such good shape around those movies that it just kind of, I mean, I, I don't go as crazy Defcon five about it as I do when we are shooting something or when mm-hmm. we were preparing, but yeah, yeah. I'm going back to it. Of course, I always try to go back, 
get really get into the gym and and into the diet specifically like three months before and um and it's a whole process uh and but i've gotten a little bit more comfortable now in my sort of my strengths versus my weak points you know um i think like in some somewhere around the civil war movie i was just i was like i just want to be as massive as i can or something like i was just really and now i'm kind of more okay i I know what works for me a little bit better and not, but yeah, it's always, especially because of the stunt stuff. And, you know, I, I like, it's a, it's a, it's a blessing really, because in a lot of ways, you know, I don't have, Bucky doesn't have any head covering anything. Since we started, I've managed to do a lot of stunt stuff. Whenever there's a physical sequence, like we, we always, get passes at that, you know what I mean? And it really is on us, like how, how much we want to be involved or not. And I've mm-hmm. always wanted to be as involved as possible. And it's been amazing. I mean, I think what happens is when you do it so many times, like <laughs> I was so obsessed with it on the Civil War, I would even go up to the Russos and be like, even when the camera wasn't on me, I'd, I'd still want to do it. And they'd be <laughs> like, dude, here's a <laughs> you don't understand. Like, and one time I like pulled my back <laughs> because you can't, like if you're doing that sequence like 30 times or whatever, like even like you're exhausted. You're, I don't care how, what, you know, maybe a super trained athlete, whatever, like they're training for that fight, right? They're training for that two hours, like for months, but we're going eight hours a day. Like, I think even some of the stuff, like it's, I've always had a good, amount of stuff that I was allowed to do. And that for me is super fun because he's much more hand-to-hand combat. You know, he's got his arm, like he can't fly. He's not throwing hammers and spider webs and stuff. Like he's just, it's much more hand-to-hand and, 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 and it's because I want to be in shape to be able to do that. Yeah. I'm just curious how that works over a pandemic hiatus. Zoe Kravitz told me that she was, uh, you know, she's training for Catwoman and then she had to like keep training for Catwoman for an entire year, not knowing when she's going to go back, you know? So for the pandemic, I was running a lot. And then what I did was um, I had a pull-up bar in my apartment and I was literally running up and down stairways. (laughs) And then I was doing a hundred, I was doing a hundred to 200 pushups a day, a hundred pull-ups, a day, hundred sit-ups, hundred squats. Like I would just do that over and over again. And yeah, that was the only way. Right. Bucky's connection to Wakanda is something that I think is so interesting. That was kind of doubled down on in this, in this show. You have that incredible fireside scene that you did just insane amount of uh, emotional work in just that scene, the deep programming scene. Can you talk about filming that scene. Oh God, that scene is like, you know, <laughs> those are the scenes that when you read a script, you're like, oh yes, this is gonna be amazing. Like, you're like, oh, I love that, that's amazing. It's gonna be like the moment. And then it starts to be like this iceberg ahead <laughs> in the that you're like slowly going closer, closer to it. It's like, Oh God, that scene. Oh God, that scene's coming up. And then you just have it marked on your calendar. Like in two weeks is that, you know, and it's just, and even up until that point, it's just always a, 
it's a scary thing to kind of always be thinking about because, you know, you have to go to these places and you have to go there. And, and um, yeah, we did it, May, uh, we did it a few times and it was a good day. <laughs> Um, and then my last question is, um, because of Buggy's connection to Wakanda, I think a lot of people are hoping to see you maybe uh, in future Wakandan stories. I know you don't know anything. I know they don't tell you anything. I know even if they did, you couldn't tell me anything. But um, is that something you would want to do? Is that something oh, yeah. you would want to see Bucky explore? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean... <laughs> Just like thinking about it now with like the whole Chadwick thing is just so crazy. I'm like, with him, I was always like really enamored because I remember on that Civil War movie as we met and, and uh, you know, he had come in and, and he was new and he, you know, he, it's sort of like it was the introduction of his character. And I was like, oh my God, this guy is gonna, he's gonna blow everyone away. You know what I mean? Like I, it, it was, there was such like a commitment and dedication to everything he was doing. It was just so crazy. And we had a lot of these fight sequences and I'm being terrified of going in those scenes with him. Um, and, he, and, and we went for it. Like we, like we went, we really went for it. Cause I, I was like, okay, he's really showing up. Like I gotta, I gotta stand tall. I gotta show up, you know? And then afterwards we would just do these little fist bumps, you know, like, cool, we're good, you know, like, and then after we shot, you know, I spent some time a little bit, like when we would see each other on these press tours and we would be laughing and, and it was, and it was really cool. And, and I just, in my head, I'd always hope, you know, that there was just going to be more. And so it's just crazy to even wrap my mind around the idea of being in any world without him there. You know, I just can't even imagine it really in my mind, you know, but Obviously, I always felt like I, I, I always in my little scene, you know, in my little scene at the end of Black Panther, I was always like, oh, I'm part of the world, you know, I'm part of that movie. I was I felt I felt so good, you know, with that little scene. And, and I just loved working with Ryan Coogler, you know, on that. He, it was so cool because that was he directed that scene. And I remember being there that day. And and so I kind of got to work with him a little bit. And and I was it was a really cool experience like I really really liked him uh, as a director and I loved Fruitville Station I loved all of his movies yeah. um, I love Creed I, I like so so the idea of working with him again in some capacity is really cool and and you can bet <laughs> I've, I've definitely raised my hand and I said hey man whatever I can do I'm in but it's just it's going to be wild to tackle, you yeah. know, any of, any of that going forward. I have no idea. Well, I hope every conversation, future conversation you have with Kevin Feige ends with like, all right, see you in Wakanda. I'll be there. Yeah, I could just keep sending, uh, I could, you know what? I should just send him an email once a week, just Wakanda. Yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of cool. You know, like I love, I, 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 Again, like I felt really like grateful and proud that I was included even with that little scene. Cause sometimes like, you know, like I, I, I told this story before, but I don't know, I, I love telling it. You know, I like, I was on this airplane one time and 
I was flying home and, and I remember the stewardess came up to me and she gave me, she just handed me this tiny piece of paper and like walked away. And I was like, what? So I was like, I don't know, maybe it was the number. I, I have no idea what, you know, and I, I open it and it's just said Wakanda forever, you know? And then I like turn around to look down the aisle and she just goes, <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. Okay. Like, but it was, so I know, um, I, I love that, that people remember that Bucky's a part of that in some way. So, you know, hopefully maybe there'll be more. The last time I talked to you was only like a couple episodes into WandaVision. And I asked you a question about sort of this idea of wanting to avoid the sort of hysterical female trope mm-hmm. in WandaVision. You got like kind of excited and you're like, yes, we have these conversations and I'm excited for you to see how it plays out. And so I want to talk to you on, on the other side of it all, sort of how everything lands, you know, if you can get even a little bit more specific about the conversations you had around that, about wanting to make sure that Wanda didn't fall into that, that trope. It's something that Jack Schaefer and I truly would have zero interest in making Wanda be a continuation of, of this narrative that women who are emotive equal um, hysterical and subvert that into that actually being her greatest strength and power is being able to be this, this deep feeling person. Yeah. And and in the same way, we subverted this I, the idea that obviously on these these sitcom shows, the family nucleus, like the mom being, you know, the woman who cleans and takes the kids, takes care of the kids, yeah, and allow that to be this one woman's dream that she actually can't have in reality, and that's taken from her. But that's something that she deeply uh, wishes was her reality. I feel like the way we told that story, I'm proud of because I do think she finds more sense of an acceptance of her own strength and ability. And she now is going to harness that experience of her emotions being this like explosive thing that controls her and harness it. And I do think there is a sense of accountability at the end of the show for her to focus on moving on to the next phase in her life. I wonder, you know, I know there's so much you can't tell me about Dr. Strange and I promise this is not going to be me like sort of, you know, hounding you for, for <laughs> things you can't talk about, but I was talking to, um, Michael Waldron, who's the head writer on Loki and also wrote Dr. Strange, wow. right? And he was telling What'd me that, Michael? <laughs> I'll tell you what I got from Michael, but one thing that he told me, first of all, is that he became really good friends with Jack because the Loki writer's room and the and the WandaVision writer's room were close to each other. And he was like, one big thing for me going into this film and picking up Wanda's story is that I didn't want to let down my friend Jack Schaefer. She did such a good job and I wanted to make sure I honored like what she did with WandaVision and this incredible job she did. And he was like, I was talking to Jack often about Wanda and how she would be portrayed in this film. And I was just wondering, you know, if, if you're aware of that or, or what that meant to you, this idea of like passing the Wanda baton between these two friends. I was aware of it because it was, it became when we, cause I didn't, I had no idea what my role was going to be in Dr. Strange until we went back to finish WandaVision during the pandemic. And we had already shot the majority of this show already. And it became this large conversation of like, 
What does that mean for our tag scene? What does that mean for what the crossover is in Doctor Strange? And it is uh, so hard. Isn't it so annoying and so hard to have like to talk about the thing <laughs> that we can't talk about? But to still say something um, like honest, but. I think it's a really good transition of her core. And I also think it's surprising for our audience. <laughs> like I did it. Um, I want, <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you, you talked about like sort of Wanda coming into her own power, discovering her power. Um, something that I think is so interesting is, is, you know, you were doing work as an executive producer on Sorry for Your Loss. And I was wondering what that experience taught you about sort of your your power, your ability to have input over, you know, your acting choices or your acting roles going forward. It was incredible. I mean, it, it really was a trans, I think I would say like mid season, season one was, um, a huge learning transition for me. I had James Ponsel. I would like defer to him always. Cause he was also an EP and one of our directors. And he was so good at, kind of, he's going to, he would laugh, but I was like mentoring me, but I do feel like in a way he was mentoring me to use my voice and to trust my instincts and in giving notes. And then for the second season, I really felt like I had an, I just had so much fun. And I like had, I had a whole structure worked out of outlines and character arcs and when did I want, I wanted scripts now sooner or like the, you know, earlier drafts now sooner than I did first season. Cause I felt like I could now multitask a bit better, mm-hmm. um, and handle notes and not kind of feel overwhelmed, even though I think I was probably overwhelmed the whole time and people probably <laughs> felt like the worst parts of me, um, and my like control freakness. And it, it was, it was incredible. It was truly the one of the greatest learning experiences I could have had. I saw how everything can be done if I ever wanted to direct something, which I'm not sure yet, but I have seen how maybe the healthiest way to crew up a show is to a writer's room, to the whole journey in between and editing and color correction and sound mixing, like all the things that I had wanted to experience. I got Mm. to do that on that show. And it created now this never ending voice in my head that now just expresses all of her opinions. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on set. And I, I just am someone who just, and it's great working with, like I'm starting to work with another director right now. And it's great just saying, when people sometimes would ask me like, how do you like to work? I wouldn't really know how to answer that. Cause I've always been like malleable to other actors, like working specific ways. I'm, I'm cool to kind of like be fluid in that zone. Um, and now I can just say, you know, it's really good for me to have like all the information just so I don't have to ask questions in my head and think, why are they doing that instead of this? But if I just have the information of like, Oh, this is an issue. So we're doing this instead. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to try and make up what the issue is and spend like, weeks trying to figure out why are we doing it this way and so I know that that that's now something I just like having information even when I'm not a producer um it's just help I'm sure other actors be like how the fuck would you like keep all that straight and (laughs) 
And it actually rests my brain. It rests like my monkey brain, I think, to just have facts and information about how everything's like going, why schedules are changing. And um, yeah, I loved that experience. That reminds me of, um, I was talking to Julianne Nicholson about the ending of Mayor of Easttown. And she's just talking about how Kate Winslet, who served as an EP on that, everyone talked about how Kate Winslet, who served as an EP on that project, was just lugging around this massive binder at all times with like every <laughs> single bit of continuity. And oh, she was just funny. like, she was just in it, all the way in it, you know what I mean? Oh, in a way that, that I think a lot of actors are increasingly, and I, th- I think a lot of actresses specifically are increasingly sort of being like, I can have a little bit more control over this or, or at least a little bit more information about yeah. what's going on. I'm entitled to that information. You know what I mean? Yeah. I also think it makes everything better if we all just like communicate and listen to each other more. Like, I just think that's just good teamwork. So is it wild to think about, you know, I imagine maybe you, you took some of those tools with you in, in making WandaVision, right? Some of that, I would yeah, like all the information, right please. After, yeah. yeah. So thinking about who you were on that set versus who you were on like Age of Ultron, do you know what I mean? Which was so yeah. much early in your career. Like, how do you, how do you compare those two, those two women? I would say on every single ensemble job that I have done with, with Marvel, mm-hmm. I try and take up the least space possible and let everyone else's personalities fly. And that's truly what I, what I'm, I'm, I'm more comfortable in that space. It's kind of in the same way. Like I'm re- it's really nice to have one-on-one conversations, but if you put me in like a theater with like 50 people and having to like address like a Ted talk kind of thing, yeah. it's my worst nightmare. So I just would rather be small and take up a little bit of space and do my part of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still think I'm going to be like that and the other, like, big ensemble ones. I didn't feel that way with Doctor Strange because it wasn't that kind of a thing. But, yeah, the between Age of Ultron and WandaVision, it's literally, like, someone who, like, doesn't want to peep up and who is, like, so scared to, like, do anything wrong, who just, like, is going to defer to everyone else for information uh, and just do it and just, like... <laughs> you know, Elaine. And yeah. now in WandaVision, it was really like I wasn't a producer on it, but I it felt like I wanted to be I wanted to be like a leader. You know, I wanted to take the opportunity to kind of set the tone of how we treated one another, how prepared we were, how collaborative we could be. And and Matt Shackman was the ultimate greatest leader. And we really I think we, like, we didn't come to work with our sides in our hands. You know, we were giving notes to Jack at least a week before we, and obviously there are things that are always going to be coming up and changing, but we didn't want to do the whole thing where, you know, an actor has a brilliant idea at midnight and, and we have to kind of spend too much time that we do not have discussing that brilliant idea. <laughs> so you're like have your ideas often. early and often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah like just be prepared, just look ahead and be prepared and, and then be really kind and treat everyone with respect. And that's kind of like, that's just that, that is how we worked and we had a joyful time doing it. Well, then what does it mean to you to see, I mean, you know, 
Wanda has always been a, a character embraced by the fandom, but what does it mean to you, given that you had this different approach this time, to see Wanda embraced by a much larger group of people and awards folks are knocking at your door and all this sort of stuff? <laughs> yeah, I feel very, like, really grateful. I was mortified when this show was coming out. I was having a lot of, like, weird anxiety about it and felt pressure from the idea that Marvel hadn't had something come out and it felt so different. And I was like, they like the sitcom, but they're not going to like, they're not going to like it when we get out of the sitcom. Like I, you know, there's just, I, um, I had a strange, (laughs) strange experience, um, when I was working in England and it sounded like every people were, were enjoying it. And I just like, didn't, wasn't believing it. And so it was really kind of when I wrapped Doctor Strange and came home and I now have this gratitude that I feel like Catherine and Paul and Tiana had while we were doing press, like during it coming out. And they had this like nostalgia of the time we had. And I'm still playing the same freaking character, but like moved on. And I just could not like sit back and kind of have just that like gratitude and I do now and it is it is really um feels good even if nothing happens to be continue to be a part of a conversation about like you know people acknowledging work that was done and as much as I you know try not to have an attachment to it it is um, a sense of like gratitude and, you know, you just feel lucky. Now, now in this more reflective space, is there a moment or a scene or, or a decision that, that you piped up about that you are most proud of, you know, that your opinion sort of made it through? God, I have no idea. It's hard for me to go back and think about it since I was piping up about other things. <laughs> I was like, I can tell you about everything I picked up out of Doctor Strange. <laughs> I I can't think of anything. I'm just thinking of things that I had questions about and maybe questioned. And I trusted Matt and Jack and it turned out well, um, as opposed to something that I was like um, pushing for. All right. So what was something you were worried about that landed sort of? I think the penultimate episode, the the kind of Scrooge episode, mm-hmm. um, I I had a hard time navigating the transitions and the logic, and I'm um, and I was just trying to trust the storytelling, and the storytelling took care of itself. That was a people love that episode. That was, which a was huge episode. Which was I think all of us, <laughs> like Matt, Catherine, we all were just hoping that we would pull it off. Like it felt, it it definitely felt like a big leap and they did a great job with it. And so that's that's an example where I was just trying to trust the storytelling and um, not get in my own way. You mentioned this from the jump, sort of um, talking about carrying the character of Wanda forward to Strange and you you, you said something feels almost like preemptively about, I think she has learned accountability and stuff like that, which felt like, which felt like a reaction to 
this question some people had of like, was was Wanda suitably punished for what she did in WandaVision, yeah. which was never an attitude I had, but I'm just wondering, you know, how that conversation landed with you. Well, I learned that in an interview and I, and I was so, I was like, I was, re- it really surprised me. I didn't know that that was a conversation. Yeah. And then, and then, and then when I was talking about it in the interview, it said that we had shot something that didn't make the show and that's not true. What was in the show, I believed, um, all these big trucks are coming in and all this military met like men and women are coming in to assess the situation. And she flies away. Like she needs to escape or else she's going to get in trouble and she didn't want to get in trouble. Yeah. And so she went away with her, like her grief and her shame and is now, I didn't think of her being in that home in the tag. Like she is at peace, but she's also now for the rest of her life hiding. Like she, she just did something that makes her a criminal. Um, so in my mind, the next step in her life is like this new sense of identity of knowing the acts that she committed and her own accountability of it. I mean, maybe, maybe we could have not made that like moment or something as sweet with Monica at the end. And maybe it would be, you know, I don't know, but. Yeah. I, 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 it, to me, it it struck me as very odd, especially considering what so many other characters in the MCU have done without people sort of like, crying for them to be punished for it. Do you know what I mean? Like people love, love Loki and he, you know, did the battle of New York. Do you know what I mean? It's just sort of, I don't, no one died. Yeah. Like, yeah. No one died. <laughs> yeah. So it's like People almost like torture. It's <laughs> almost like it's a witch hunt or something yeah. like that. You know? Yeah. It's very, it's very weird. Um, I was wondering if you had any conversations with Jack when she signed her overall deal uh, with Marvel. Did you not know about this? What does that mean? It means she's just going to be doing a lot of more stuff for Marvel going forward. Isn't that exciting? Oh God, I have chills everywhere. <laughs> I know. No, I haven't talked because I don't know about someone has to tell me or I'll never know. <laughs> Here I am telling you. Yeah. 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 Oh, I'm so excited to tell, like set, now say something to her. That's so exciting. Yeah. I'm really excited. I mean, it, to me, it feels like a confirmation that the kind of storytelling you guys are doing in WandaVision is the kind of stuff that Marvel wants to do going forward. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah. You know? yeah. Oh, how cool. I yeah. truly, like all my hairs are standing up right now. <laughs> I'm so happy for her. Yeah. Yeah. And Michael too, you know, like the fact that, that Marvel's like holding on to Waldron and to Jack Schaefer, like these are really great folks to have in your stable going forward. Right. Michael's yeah. great. I, yeah, he became a friend of mine filming Dr. Strange. And I, I think we are going to see a very long career with that guy. Yeah. Um, one th- another thing that, that he said to me is that he compared Strange to, well, first of all, he's like, Dr. Strange is an Anthony Bourdain to me. Wild galaxy brain thought. Love that for him. Yeah. Um, but he was also like this. He's like, I really want to do like sort of an Indiana Jones-esque like adventure story. That's what Dr. Strange was to me. Without, you know, once again, I'm going to ask you these questions. You can say, I can't say anything at all, whatever. But is that how the film feels to you? And if so, you know, like who would who would want to be in an Indiana Jones-esque adventure? 
I I think it's scarier than Indiana Jones. Mm. I think it definitely feels more Sam Raimi than that. So maybe that was the goal, but it definitely became something darker, I think. And by Sam Raimi, do you do you mean like Evil Dead Sam Raimi or sort of what do you what do you mean by I that? I mean, yeah, not like uh it's like Western with like <laughs> <laughs> um um yes, the 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 horror genre feeling of constant like fear and thrill and misleads and um playing with camera, playing with how the perspective of like the depth of field in order to make the audience feel more anxious mm-hmm. and like things like there's a lot it's more I think it's more than like a glossy Indiana Jones movie which I love Indiana Jones but I, I feel like it's it has a, a darker thing going on it's like the scariest parts of Temple of Doom um, yes you know it's like I mean. the scariest parts of Temple of Doom. <laughs> like the, the heart the, yeah, yeah. And like the fire and the cage. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about this, the Candy Montgomery series that you're doing for HBO. Uh, yeah. Is that what you're working on right now? Not till um, end of September or mid-September. Okay. Um, but I've already had one stress dream about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was your stress dream about it? Well, you don't have to tell me your dreams. But well, well no, I mean, it's uh, it's just, you know, the beginning process of starting a character that's different and... I, you know, I'm trying to figure out it's a real woman, uh, but we don't have much like actual life footage beyond a few photos. And she has since like changed her name and lives some, you know, just has, it's not someone that's, that's going to be like a source, but it's also how much with something that isn't when you're playing someone who really exists, whether it's like a literary character or someone who's in real life, it's almost like you're trying to figure out like, where do you, where do you fit in? Mm. And as well as the way the story is being told, you kind of want to serve more, you kind of want to inspire from, cause it's not like I'm playing, um, Jackie O or something like someone that we know so famously. Right. And so it's just trying, trying to start building those blocks of choices and just, you know, having panic dreams about, not being prepared. <laughs> Do you have panic dreams about all of your roles or? Probably. Yeah. yeah. In different ways. I, a lot of, I have a lot of recurring dreams when I'm filming that um, we're trying to get one more shot while I'm sleeping. And so the camera crew is in my room and I'm trying to remember the continuity of like what side of my body I'm sleeping on and like trying to cover my sheets in a way so that it was like that it's like not exposing myself and those are my anxiety oh my god that's a recurring one like on every single project I'll have that at least once that the camera crew's in my house trying to get the last shot while I'm sleeping that's awful for your sleep I imagine (laughs) I'm a terrible sleeper (laughs) um Something I love about, you know, I'm 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 so excited for uh this series that you're doing, the Love and Death Candy Montgomery series. Um, David E. Kelly, obviously like the the David E. Kelly, Nicole Kidman woman mystery murder machine is yeah. is firing all cylinders. <laughs> Big fan of that. Big fan of Je- huge fan of Jesse Plemons. So Me I'm so too. excited. Yeah. I danced, I think, for two days. I haven't met him yet, but I like freaked out. I was so happy. <laughs> um, I'm wondering what like what you make of this sort of, I feel like we're in, you know, 
we've been in the superhero, you know, research, research and surge and surge, I guess, for a long time. But I feel like we're in the middle of a like female murder mystery. It's not, this isn't quite a murder mystery, but a female sort of like murder show, HBO uh, surge. What do, what do you think about that? And like, why do you think those stories are hitting with people uh, right now? I think people have always loved true crime. I, I mean, you know, that's why we have an entire television station that 24 hour now just like tells like true crime stories where like it's a husband and wife like murder. <laughs> I think, And now we have like endless podcasts about true crime. Yeah. And I just, I just think we, I don't know why the hell do we love it so much? Like it's, I mean, I, I can't imagine it validates like people's inner like violence or anger. Like I'm not quite sure what it is, but there is, it is always shocking. And the thing that I love most about love and death is it's just, it, it all happened. It's all real. And there, the details are out. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. 